The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, coming to you from Zurich, Switzerland. Like all of you, Breaking Views columnists are confined to their homes all around the world. For this week's podcast, like we did last week, I thought it would be worth visiting with a few of them. So we'll check in first with Gina Chan in Palo Alto, California, to discuss the Golden State's fight to flatten the curve of the coronavirus, as well as some of the efforts undertaken by the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government. I was particularly interested in getting Gina's take on Fed boss Jay Powell's decision to pop onto the popular Today Show on NBC last week. First time a Fed governor done that in generation. From California, we'll head to the UK, where our European editor, Peter Thal Larson, will fill us in on London under lockdown. We'll also discuss the ongoing debate in Europe in particular, whether banks and large financial companies, insurers and the like, should be paying dividends or not. Regulators have mostly made the decision for them, but it is a fraught one. Then I will hand things over to Asia, where Pete Sweeney, Alec McFarlane, and Yuna Galani will discuss one of the biggest rescues yet of the coronavirus era, that of Singapore Airlines. So let's get going. Gina Chan, it is a pleasure to speak with you via Microsoft Teams from Zurich to Palo Alto, California. How is, uh, how is lockdown in Silicon Valley going for you? Well, we're on week two now, um, or I should say we've gone through two weeks now, and we're all holding up okay. Um, the Instacart deliveries and DoorDash deliveries are, I think, keeping all of us, uh, our households running so far. Well, I mean, you, yeah, you're in the heart of Silicon Valley where all of the apps, uh, the delivery apps and every, I mean, the world is, is so incredibly convenient. Is there anything that's not working out there? You know, I think because people here are so tech and science oriented. Um, people started working from home really early, like the tech companies here, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or others, um, ordered everyone to uh, stay at home weeks before the lockdown here started or when uh, President Trump started to take this more seriously. So you've really seen um, a, a decrease or I should say flattening of the curve um, in terms of the number of cases. The hospitals were just saying um, yesterday that they aren't overwhelmed like they thought they would be at this point in the cycle of the outbreak. Um, so that's been really encouraging. Um, but of course, you know, we're all dealing with what everyone else is dealing with. Um, the Wi-Fi bandwidth is uh, straining, I think, under uh, everyone working from home. We're on the Stanford system, um, so that has its own challenges because it's not like a private run company. <laughs> right, right. So, but it's interesting. California is always at the, at the head of every curve, but it's, in, it, it's, it's interesting to note the way that they were quicker in many respects to lock down than other parts of the states, and, and including in, in some respects ahead of New York, which had er earlier indications of um, an outbreak. What is our people viewing Gavin Newsom, the governor there? Is he uh, is he taking on a sort of a more heroic posture? Yeah, I don't think he's quite reached the national fame level that uh, Andrew Cuomo has in New York. But definitely here, he's been a reassuring voice. Um, he's also been working really closely with the private sector. Uh, so he gave a shout out to Mark Zuckerberg um, the other day 
acting. Um, he was one of the first people to step up and he's donated $25 million to help um, get more equipment for various hospitals here. Um, he's also gone in with Bill Gates with the Gates Foundation to um, fund research for a vaccine and other treatments for the virus. So you've also seen a lot of the um, companies here that have, you know, a lot of cash on their balance sheets and this is as good of a time to use it as any um, are, are definitely deploying it. Probably not a bad time too to show their bona fides, their goodwill, given all of the issues that we've seen over the past two years with regards to, uh, you know, the use of Facebook or political meddling and that kind of thing. Yeah, no, you've really seen some of the sentiment turn around a bit. Um, I mean, it, it may be temporary once uh, the outbreak fades, hopefully soon, but you've seen them step up. I mean, Zuckerberg, again, did um, a live Facebook live show with uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci of the um, National Infectious Disease Institute and with others. So he's been really trying to get out there more. And you've also seen Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube um, really crack down on misinformation about the virus and any sort of, you know, fake cures for it. Um, and Yeah, I've seen they've even been shutting down people like Laura Ingram and sort of yeah. these Fox News anchors and people who've been spreading information that was contrary to facts and truth. And they've been getting their uh, Twitter handles knocked out for a little while until they take things down. Yeah, they even... Um, went after, I think both Facebook and Twitter, the Brazilian leader Bolsonaro, um, because of some of the things he's been saying. So they've uh, tried to be much more aggressive than they have in the past when it came to misinformation. Yeah, I was about to drink a giant, a gallon of bleach having read this. <laughs> and then I thought, oh, well, maybe let me just refresh. Oh, that's no longer true. But what about now you've also written quite a bit about um, well, let's talk. We can think about the, the sort of culture and tech and startup. But I also want to go to Washington a bit because you you mm -hmm. keep one foot there and you've written quite a bit about the Fed. And, and I thought one of the pieces you did was about uh, Jay Powell's kind of You've written about this in the past, him kind of making it the Federal Reserve, the people's bank, as it were, and speaking sort of plainly, speaking frequently. He also went on the Today Show, um, the NBC program that, you know, you one equates with, I don't know, you know, uh, stay at home moms and dads uh, watching as they as they put their kids uh, lunches together. And instead, you had the Federal Reserve chairman speaking on the Today Show. What was, what do you think, what was, what's going on there? Yeah, it was a really interesting audience for, for him to choose to, to have one of his first um, public events around this crisis. I mean, before all of this, he has been trying to build up more political credibility with the Federal Reserve because it's been seen as this very gated, elitist institution. Um, it's very highbrow. It doesn't really touch the masses in a lot of ways. And it got a lot of criticism after the financial crisis for bailing out Wall Street. So I think when Jay Powell became chair a few years ago, he really did try to make it a point to, um, he, he said, speak in plain English. Um, he's been having these listening sessions around the country to talk about how things could be improved at the Fed. And I think just... Um, 
make it more accessible to uh, to regular people and to, frankly, members of Congress who a lot of them also found, used to find the Fed pretty standoffish. Um, and you've really seen now Powell take that to heart during this crisis where they don't have the same levers that Congress and the White House does in, in terms of really um, getting money to individual households. But they have been doing a lot to um, keep markets functioning, to keep liquidity in the system. And I think he wanted to send a reassuring message to an audience that <laughs> watches the Today Show as opposed to, you know, follows the Fed's dot plots um, and try to <laughs> reassure them that, you know, the economy, while definitely not in good shape right now, um, that the Fed was there to do everything it could to help it out. And 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 when you look at the various programs, we've got what two point three trillion of fiscal t stimulus, um, but you also have I don't know how many trillion was it one and a half trillion of Fed stimulus. Um, you know what, uh, what 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 is the danger for the Fed in in stepping out there and, and giving so much ammunition? Is it is there a concern that it's just going to, to filter what right up to the rich again in the same way that it, people argue it kind of it created the inequities? of after the crisis of 2008 what is it what is it that the feds how is he trying to make that message that this isn't just about making people who own stocks um whole yeah no that definitely um was a criticism and continued to be um almost up to the point of this outbreak in terms of uh quantitative easing and the inflation of asset prices um and how that did really just funnel to you know hedge fund guys and and others um, so he has been trying to sort of convey more of a message that while the Fed can't do everything and a lot of the levers are really up to Congress and, and the White House, they are trying to do what they can. So they're, you know, backstop everything from like credit card debt to student loans. They announced that they're going to be um, implementing what they're calling a Main Street lending program that will go to small and medium sized businesses, which is pretty unusual um, if, if unprecedented for the Fed to do. So they can't um, send direct cash payments to households the way Treasury is going to be doing as part of the fiscal emergency relief, but they are trying to reach more people than they normally would and send the message that this is not going to, you know, huge Wall Street banks as they did during the crisis, but going to more of um, the mom and pop shops. Right, Main America. Street, as it were, versus yeah. Wall Street. And of course, that now you wrote uh, also about the, the the fact that a lot of the money, whether it's the bailout money from or the, the, the fiscal stimulus and otherwise, isn't going to go to the startup tech world because to explain why. Yeah, it's just really um, arcane rules from the Small Business Administration that I think, frankly, didn't envision um, a situation like this. And and obviously, it's pretty unprecedented, so you can't really fault them for that. But they have these rules that uh, small business loans in this certain program um, can't go to can only go to businesses that have less than 500 employees. And the way they are counting that is uh, if you have the same investor or group of investors 
a lot of those companies will then be lumped together and their employees are counted as one group. So in the startup world's case, like you take a ubiquitous venture capital firm like Andreessen Horowitz, and the way the Small Business Administration would see them is basically all of Andreessen's portfolio companies would be counted as one big Andreessen affiliated company that probably has, you know, thousands of employees and wouldn't be eligible for the loan. And that's really um, freaked out a lot of the startup and VC community here because you've already seen um, hundreds of layoffs uh, in the last few weeks. And there's going to be a lot more here because you can obviously fundraise in in this environment. Um, People are running out of cash and these are job creators. Right. right. So they're trying to figure out how they can um, fix this situation. Yeah. Well, good, Gina. Um, I won't keep you any longer. I know you're you're uh, you've got a little one there and you're all cramped into a <laughs> into a Stanford uh, a, a dorm, practically. Yeah, um, but, exactly. <laughs> uh, stay healthy out there. Keep up the good work. And I will Zoom or um, Teams with you very soon. Thanks so much. Greetings from Zurich, uh, Peter Thal Larson, and hello to Lockdown London. How is uh, how is week two of your lockdown going? Uh, it's going okay so far. Uh, the weather's been pretty good, uh, which is helps, and uh, we're still allowed to go outside um, once a day for exercise and also to uh, visit the shops. So um, we're not totally confined, um, nice. and um, you know people are. Um, People are adapting, I think. Uh, you know, some tempers getting a bit frayed, but uh, but so far so good. And what is the when you go to the shops? What is it that the British people are hoarding? Is it the same as everyone else? Toilet paper, or do you have things like hobnobs and uh, uh, I don't know boiled sweets or whatever <laughs> that are on the list? Um, I think well, the the, the, the toilet paper uh, and pasta hoarding started early, um, and then uh, when Boris Johnson closed all the pubs, obviously, then there was a run on all types of alcohol. Um, uh, I went. My favorite local wine shop told me that there had been a massive run on white burgundy, uh, which gives you some indication of uh, what the priorities are for uh, for this part of North London. Well, you must um, live in a posh place because uh, it wasn't just sort of some cheap tipple. Um, but yeah, but generally the, uh, the, 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 the alcohol shelves are the ones that have been, those are the pictures of the bare shelves that I've been seeing most recently. Uh, that's very British, I have to say. <laughs> um, well, look, I, the other thing that we've noticed in terms of hoarding is, uh, isn't just a uh, consumer phenomenon. One of the things we're seeing, and you've written a lot about, which I want to discuss, is just the way that uh, banks in particular have been uh, hoarding capital. And part of that is, is only part of that is voluntary. It seems that this seem, there's a regulatory directive that we've seen kind of in Europe, we've seen it in Switzerland, we've seen it in the UK now, um, basically asking or demanding or, or I should say, you know, exhorting banks and insurance companies not to pay out, for instance, dividends that had already been promised. Why don't you walk us through a little bit what that means? Well, I think I mean, there's a couple of things going on. As you, as you said, there's a, there's a broader um, uh, dash for cash going on across um, the corporate world. And um, 
and and what's happened with the banks really is that they've become like the shock absorbers for this uh, for this crisis. In stark contrast to 2008, obviously when they were the shock amplifiers. Um, and so companies have been um, have been drawing down their credit lines, um, have been sort of you know getting getting every access to every bit of cash that they can, um, and that's putting a strain on on the balance sheet of banks. And I think the regulators expect there to be more strains. And so what they've done is they've really tried to um, make it possible for, for banks to absorb as much of this hit as possible. And so in that environment, um, bank capital becomes very valuable. Um, and so regulators have done things like they've said, well, you've built up these buffers over the past decade. We're going to let you run down some of those buffers if necessary so you can actually support more lending but at the same time we're also going to make sure that you don't distribute any capital to your shareholders or probably to your employees um, while for, for as long as this thing lasts so we've seen a bunch of European banks actually uh, some more reluctantly than others cancel the dividend that they had already announced for 2019 but hadn't paid hadn't paid yet they've also put dividends and, and, and share buybacks on hold for the coming year. And in, 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 in a growing number of cases, also there's, um, there's been announcements that, um, uh, you know, they're not going to pay cash bonuses to executives or to, to, to highly paid uh, uh, traders, um, you know, until things, um, until things improve. And, and are the banks um, happy to be told that they can't pay out their, their dividends? To shareholders, or, or do they are they are they disguise are they actually quite happy that they've been told not to, rather than having the decision foisted upon them to decide how much to pay out? I think I think it's a bit of both. I mean, I think there are some banks, probably the banks that are in less good shape overall, are actually secretly quite relieved to be uh, to be not paying out a dividend because. The last thing they want to do is have to go and raise capital in in these very straightened times. I mean, that would essentially probably mean uh, having to raise money from governments, which 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 none of them really want to do if they can avoid it. Um, so, but actually, but so so what the regulators to a certain extent are doing is providing cover by saying, really, we want everybody to do this. I mean, the European Central Bank uh, did it at the end of last week. Uh, um, the Bank of England uh, basically wrote letters to all the big banks um, uh, last night and said, um, you know, we would we would basically encourage you not to pay your 2019 dividend. And so that gives the banks cover to to take that that action and also gives them some protection from from shareholders and others who might be unhappy about this. Even then, it does seem to have come as a surprise to the market though. the shares of all the the, U, the big UK banks. We're down sharply this morning because um, uh, people suddenly realized that 2019 dividend that they thought they were going to get in the next couple of weeks um, is not arriving. And the UK, uh, it was what was the what was the UK's directive? How did it come out? Was it the Bank of England? It was the Bank of England. So, yeah, again, I think I mean, there was obviously a lot of discussion, uh, I think, within some of these banks about whether they should pay that dividend, whether they should hold it back or worry about if they announced that they weren't paying the dividend, would that be interpreted by the market as a sign? That they were somehow in trouble, um, and so uh, so what ended up happening is that the, uh, um, the, the the Prudential Regulatory Authority, which is the, the the body that sits under the Bank of England that regulates the banks, wrote to all the big banks and published these letters last night, basically saying, um, please don't pay your dividend for 2019, don't pay any more dividends for the coming year or for the foreseeable future, and um, and also uh, uh, hold back on any cash 
payments to cash bonuses to uh, to your employees. Now, okay, well, let's get to the bonus in a second. But if the dividends accrue, so they just sit there on capital or excess capital or on the balance sheets of the banks, which so as a shareholder, you still own that um, you know that payout should it come, you know, but you 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 have the comfort to some degree of knowing um, that you won't be asked. Uh, or you're less likely to be asked to for a rights issue or anything like that, I suppose. But it does, of course, affect people who depend, including uh, pension funds and have to pay out uh, obligations, I suppose. They expect that cash to come in at some point, right? Does that so is there a knock on effect here of corral of, of stockpiling dividends? I think there is, yeah. I mean, definitely pension funds, I think, probably are the most um, uh, are the most exposed. I mean, I guess there are also individual investors who hold certain shares for the income that they get from them, and that income will, will dry up. Um, but pension funds also obviously kind of rely on a certain amount of cash coming in um, to, to, to channel it out. And it's not just the banks, right? I mean, it's it's kind of across the board. A lot of big companies are suddenly turning off their dividend taps. Um, and we've seen it with, with obviously in the US with the airlines and with Boeing, we've seen it with Ford, we've seen it with uh, H&M, the fashion retailer in in in, uh, in Europe, WPP, big advertising company, um, quite a lot of companies suddenly saying, you know what, we don't know how bad this is going to get. Um, cash is, uh, is valuable, and um, we're going to hold on to it. So, um, you know, there will be, there will be knock on effects. I mean, I think uh, you're right that, that, you know, that money is still in the company and um, therefore belongs to the shareholders. And so to a certain extent, shareholders should be kind of indifferent as to whether they receive it now or later. Um, but it does obviously play to this whole sense of, of uncertainty that nobody quite knows what kind of losses or what kind of sort of hit to their capital that they're going to have to absorb. Right. I guess the, the one good thing about the regulators just making the decision means you don't have to sit there trying to figure out who is in the best or the worst position or, or or reading through the tea leaves if you know um uh, one company says well we're only going to pay out 30 percent of what we suggested and the other one says we're paying out 90 percent are you now you, you get yourself in a position like well what do they know that the other guy doesn't know or what trouble does their balance sheet have that the other guy doesn't yeah there is there is a safety in numbers here i think and um uh, but on the other hand there are also i mean a lot of you know quite a lot of these companies have um have sort of uh, essentially their pitch to investors uh, over the last few years, particularly the ones that are in sort of, you know, sort of cash generative, slower growing industries. The pitch has kind of been, you know, don't hold us for the for the growth that you're going to get from our earnings, but actually hold us for the income that we're going to distribute to you, either through dividends or by buying back stock. You know, and I think I mean if you look at the the numbers last year for the, the constituents of the S and P 500, they paid like 500 billion dollars of of dividends last year, and I think they bought back something like $730 billion of stock. And if you add those two together, that's almost equivalent to the reported earnings of those companies. So there was a vast amount of cash coming out of these companies, um, but, and that has basically stopped. So the stock market's going to be flat to down. Yeah, I mean, I guess the question, I guess the question in the stock market is, is how, for how long does that last? Is it sort of a is it a couple of months and then everything cranks up again, or uh, or does it last for longer? I have a hunch that once companies cut their dividends, that then you know there'll be a reluctance to 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 restart them back at the same level as they were before. Yeah, once yeah, that's true. Once you've made that decision, and this will be it would be interesting to watch the oil companies, the big oil majors who haven't 
cut their dividends for the most part over the years. That's true, and I mean, I think um, uh, Shell is the uh, uh, is, is a famous example. So I think they announced the other day that they were they were stopping share buybacks, but they were continuing to pay their dividend, and they pride themselves, I believe, on having paid their dividend consistently since the twenties or something, right? Yeah, since, since the Great Depression. I think they yeah. may have they may have somehow sort of you know kind of accrued a dividend during uh, during the Second World War, and I think in two thousand eight they may have paid it in stock rather than in cash. But they you know, some of these companies, a lot of their they feel a lot of their credibility with investors is built on the fact that whatever happens, they can pay a dividend, and so they'll um, they'll think quite carefully before giving that up. And about let's talk about bonuses briefly. So what what was it that the Bank of England said to the banks about bonuses? Well, they they so basically, I think the wording was something like you know kind of you know, given that you're sort of the emphasis is on conserving cash, that includes cash that you might pay to your employees in the form of bonuses. Now, I think we're trying to sort of figure out what this actually means. I think I think for most sort of people in investment banks, uh, the bonuses for last year will have already been paid. So um, uh, I think it's probably unlikely that those disappear. Um, although there are some people, maybe at the executive level, people who sit on on the boards of companies who uh, where the, the you know the the, the 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 annual meeting of shareholders hasn't yet signed off on their on their compensation, that I guess might change. Um, but the bigger question really is what happens going forward, because um, actually, if you think about people sitting, particularly in some of the trading desks of these big investment banks, um, they've done amazing amounts of business in the last couple of weeks. Right. I mean, essentially what you had is you've had huge volatility in markets. Um, you've had spreads blowing out, um, you know, bid offer spreads kind of. And so, um, I mean, it remains to be seen exactly what the impact is on the earnings. But the assumption is that um, that some of these investment banking businesses, big trading businesses will have made a lot of money in the last few weeks. And so the people working in those businesses will also be thinking, uh, you know, kind of, okay, Christmas has come and actually this year I'm going to get a, I'm going to get a chunky bonus. I mean, I think if everything bounces back in, 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 in a couple of months um, and the banks don't lose loads of money on their loan book at the same time, um, then there probably will still be quite a bit of money to go around for bonuses at the end of 2020. Um, but at the moment, all of that seems to be on hold. And so that creates a, a bit of uncertainty, I think. Right. Well, so I guess that explains why everybody's stocking up now in the white burgundy. Either they expect it won't be there or they won't have the money to pay for it. Yeah, the, uh, I think the, uh, the, the British attitude definitely seems to be to sort of drink through the lockdown. <laughs> well, on that note, um, I'll let you uh, uh, go prepare a cocktail. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, we'll be Thanks back to you again uh, for more from the London lockdown. I'm Pete Sweeney. I'm here in Hong Kong, and I am chatting with Alec McFarlane, also in Hong Kong, and with Yuno Galani in Mumbai. We're talking about some of the recent ructions resulting from the epidemic that's hit Asia and now spread to the rest of the world. You know, I wanted to start with the one big headline we've seen from the aviation industry, namely this enormous bailout of Singapore Airlines. It looks like quite the eye-catching number at, what, $13 billion? Is that right? How does this stack up regarding in, in terms of bailouts generally that we've seen coming for airlines? This is a big, bold bailout and it came fast. So it ticks all the boxes in terms of how good it can get when you're trying to save um, a 
company that is important to you if you're a government. I mean, Singapore Airlines is getting, as you said, $13 billion, and that's made up of various parts, convertible bonds, an equity issue, a bridge loan. But two or three features really stand out. Um, and one of them is that this whole fundraising package is entirely written by Tamasek, which is a Singaporean state investor and also the airline's majority owner. And that means that if outside shareholders of this public listed company do not want to come in and take up their share of the equity, they don't have to, and Singapore Airlines will still get their entire bailout. But the terms are also super generous, which is why outside investors are likely to come in. The bonds have a zero coupon. You can't imagine someone like Warren Buffett wanting something like that. And, you know, the equity is being issued at a 50% discount, which comes even after we've had these massive share price falls. So essentially, like what Singapore is telling us is that they are setting this airline up for success. They want this airline to come out of the crisis fighting fit and, and maybe even to be in a position to grab market share. Well, if you can talk a little bit more about because Singapore is sort of a unique um, situation. How important is it for it to have its own flagship airline? I think you're right. Like Singapore Airlines is too big to fail. The airline supports almost 12% of the GDP directly and indirectly and some 400,000 jobs. And I think really there's only a few countries in the world that might have that similar dynamic or uh, countries or cities. So you, in Dubai, you have Emirates Airline. In uh, Doha, you have Qatar Airways, and in Abu Dhabi, you have Etihad. And all of these airlines are sort of very central to success of these really small places. That's why the bailouts that you're likely to see of these airlines is going to be a, sort of an order of a magnitude bigger. Firstly, because the governments are rich and they can afford it. And secondly, because they're so central to the success of a city-state. I mean, if you look at what we've seen in other places, New Zealand just gave its carrier something like a $500 million loan, charging a 9% rate of interest, and they have to suspend their dividends. So, I mean, Singapore isn't punishing its airline investors in the same way. And I think in the US, I think they've said something like $50 billion of aid to the airlines, possibly in the form of warrants. But that's going to be spread across 10 or so names. So it's really nothing in the ballpark of what Singapore Airlines is doing. Well, and there's going to be a lot of economic stress. It's, it's interesting because Singapore's situation being somewhat unique, but it's not completely unique. I mean, Hong Kong is also under a lot of stress because of the lack of travel. These financial centers rely on business travel and, and trade as well. And Alec, can you talk a little bit about what's happening in Hong Kong right now? Because obviously I've, I've kind of lived through it, but it seemed like we went through this little summer period where people are starting to come back out and get out and about. And now we're, we're back in, in an even harsher lockdown. What happened? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there, there does seem to be kind of evidence that, that the government and, and Hong Kong as a whole has sort of dropped its guard in a way. So if you trace back as, as soon as maybe a fortnight ago, there was you know, like Hong Kong was kind of being lauded globally as a, as a model uh, to follow just in terms of the virus mapping measures they took out cleanliness, just a, a lot of things that made it, you know, like a real model for other countries to follow. However, what has taken them off guard is this kind of second wave of COVID-19 that's being brought back in, mainly by kind of like residents of Hong Kong that left Hong Kong during the initial outbreak to for either work or study or even to escape the initial outbreak of the virus that are now coming back in and bringing the virus back with them. 
Well, it's kind of ironic, right? Because in a way, they're a victim of, of their own success. Singapore as well. I mean, mm. these countries are now mentioned as like, oh, these guys, you know, did a really good job getting control of it. And Chinese people, Hong Kongers, Singaporeans, Taiwanese, you know, who are living in, like, say, Europe or the United States are panicking, you know, and coming back. And, you know, the nature of the virus being what it is, that in some cases people have very mild symptoms or none at all, you know, it's, it's kind of hit them again. But I mean... I think the size of the Singaporean Airlines bailout tells us something about all of these small city-states and emirates that they expect a really difficult and long road to recovery, especially for these outward-facing economies. And I think Hong Kong is part of that. And Hong Kong is also sort of wrapped up in that problem where you can be fantastic at managing the virus crisis yourself, but your economy depends on open borders. And if you don't have, I mean, it's very easy to see ourselves in a situation where you have a resumption of business long before you have a resumption of like international travel. Yeah, I mean, I hear that. And it's it's fair. I mean, they don't Hong Kong can't just tap its internal market, right? I mean, Alec, do you get the impression the local government in Hong Kong has got its head wrapped around the problem yet, or are they still struggling to come to grips? I think it's not so much that they haven't got their head wrapped around the problem. I mean, this is a government that's very prepared for, for a pandemic, you know, following the outbreak of SARS. But the real problem with Hong Kong is that a lot of it will kind of be largely out of the government's control. So if you look at, I mean, as, as Una was saying, Hong Kong is a very outward facing economy and Singapore kind of falls into this bracket as well. You know, like if, if you look at the moment, Hong Kong has banned tourists restaurants and bars are closing but all of this is that you know these are all kind of like real bit players in terms of what these sectors actually contribute to hong kong's economy the real breadwinners are logistics and trade and also financial services each of which accounts for about 20 percent of gross domestic product now both of these sectors are really bad sectors to be reliant during a pandemic given that they kind of reply on the constant churn of, of people and goods between countries and, and that is the problem that hong kong will face going forward you almost kind of need to rely on other countries containing their own outbreaks and depend on yourself to, to contain it, which, which Hong Kong's already doing a good, a good job of. But so long as Hong Kong is outward facing, they will have problems containing situations like COVID-19. And I think that for, for Hong Kong, I mean, one of the things we're obviously going to look for is what kind of support package uh, Cathay gets, Cathay Pacific. And its airline is in a sort of unique situation because it's possible that it could get a big domestic government-backed bailout. Or it could also get some sort of deal with a Chinese carrier. So it's in a slightly different, unique position. But given the importance of Cathay Pacific also to Hong Kong, uh, I think that's going to be the one to wait and watch. Yeah, well, it's interesting because Cathay Pacific kind of got in a lot of trouble over the protests, right? So it's not really winning the popularity contest in Beijing, which is a big problem, I think, right now, probably. But yeah, we'll have to watch and see. I mean, like somewhat like Singapore, Hong Kong does have the advantage of having a lot of dry powder. It's got a big fiscal reserve. Um, it's in a better position than some. But as you said, Alec, and, and both of you, that, that really basically Singapore and Hong Kong are kind of on the receiving end of what other governments do one way or the other. And they can just hope that they have enough funds to, to fend off the worst until things turn around. Anyways, I'd like to thank you guys both for talking to me. And thanks again. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Gina Chan, Peter Thal Larson, and our crew in Asia. And hats off to our producer, Freddie Joyner in New York. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. 
Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fixes. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition. And above all, stay healthy.